All right, get your Bibles out, and let's do what we do every week. We get into God's Word. Uh, Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. The Gospel of John, chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you. In fact, if you use one of those uh, church Bibles, we'll put the page number of where we're going to be on the screen so you can follow along. We want everybody with an open Bible, open heart, uh, ready to hear uh, from God. Uh, the uh, The title of the message today is grace for my failures. Grace for my failures. You ever fail at something? Or maybe, maybe you ever done something that you weren't supposed to do and you got caught? Right? Maybe you were supposed to be in class and uh, you got caught down there at 7-Eleven and you, you know, you're busted, you know, or maybe you were on a diet with your wife or your husband and then you got caught breaking that and they didn't know about it. That, that's a little self-confessional here. About uh, If you know anything about me, you know I, I love... Pie, all right? I, I never met a pie I didn't like, all right? Never have. And uh, especially if you take some of that pie and you put a little ready whip on it. You know what ready whip is? How many ready whip people are out there? Amen. In fact, this is what it looks like right here. Amen. That's a little piece of heaven right there in the camp. This message brought to you by ready whip. No, not really, not really. I felt like saying that earlier. Uh, but, you know, I love to you know, get that in. It makes a little sound. Which even makes it taste better. And I remember a couple months ago, maybe around Thanksgiving, I told Liz, I'm going to get off all the sweets and stop eating that. Start eating healthy. Drink more water. Eat more vegetables. And, you know, that kind of thing. She's like, okay, Craig, whatever. You know, and I'm like, oh, I'm really going to do it. And uh, so all the kids were in and we were watching a movie. And... Uh, I started having that kind of craving, and so I kind of slipped out. Nobody knew I was gone. They were all watching the movie. I got in the kitchen, and I kind of made me up a little something in a bowl, and, and uh, everything was going great until I got the ready whip out. I was trying to be quiet, you know, kind of, kind of hold it. And when they heard the, they all went, dead, you know, all in unison. I was busted red handy with the ready whip, all right? Uh, you know, sometimes you fail. You know, you fail in little things like diets or maybe a test or maybe a little project at work. We fail at little things. We all fail, right? We all fail at stuff. Uh, sometimes we fail, though, in big things, things that have uh, greater consequences. Uh, the truth of the matter is some of you walk in here and you, you feel like you really failed your kids. And you carry that with you all the time. Or maybe you feel like you're struggling with a, a marriage that's about to fail and, and you don't know how to fix it. Or, or you've gone through a moral failure and you're trying to come out of it, but you just feel so much shame. Or you, you feel like you failed God in some way. Well, how does God's grace meet our failures? That's what we're talking about Today. Listen, if you feel today like maybe there's just no way that God's grace could ever cover your failures, then this message is for you, all right? Uh, The Apostle Paul writes quite a bit about grace in the New Testament. All the way through his letters in the New Testament, he mentions the word grace 75 times. However, it might surprise you that Jesus never used the word grace. Though he didn't use the word, he He showed us what grace looks like over and over again. So I guess you could say this, if you want an explanation of grace, you go to Paul. But if you want to experience grace, you go to Jesus. And we're going to find in this story a person in in their greatest failure experience God's grace. 
right? So let's look at it together. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 2. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 2. This is the word of God. Early in the morning, they came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Uh, So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they had heard it, They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Then Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in these just few moments that we have, that God, you would open up our hearts to understand your grace, your grace toward us. And Lord, I pray that you would, you would uh, for some in this room that are laden down with guilt and shame over what has, they have done or what has been done to them, that God, today would be a day that they lay it on the ground and walk away because of your grace. Lord, we want to experience your grace, Jesus. So meet us here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This story begins in Jerusalem. Uh, This is late in Jesus' ministry. If you were to put a timeline to it, this would probably happen somewhere between six and seven months before Christ's death. Uh, this was also happening during a time called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Hebrew word Sukkot, uh, which means to, or, or, or maybe the Feast of Booths. All these were referencing the same festival, one of the seven festivals that the Jewish people celebrated throughout the year. This one happened in September, October, it's in the fall, and primarily celebrated the harvest, but also celebrated the fact how God preserved uh, the Israelites through the wilderness. So they would get in booths, they would get in little tents, and they would reenact times that God provided water, or God provided light, or how God, they lived in tents, and they would just relive and retell the story to pass it on to the next generation. So this particular festival was quite festive, all right, like the other that might, like the Feast of Atonement or Passover, might be heavy. This was a lot of celebration and a lot of exaltation. So people were in Jerusalem for the party, right? Kind of like our July 4th. But in the midst of all this celebration going on, in the shadows, the the religious leaders were plotting to take Jesus' life. They had had enough with him. For almost three years, they'd been confronted by him, and and they'd seen the crowds around him grow and grow, and they were threatened by him, and they wanted to take him out. And a lot of people say, well, why were they so after Jesus? And I think the main reason is because Jesus was not what they were looking for. What they were looking for is a military messiah or a conquering Christ, one that would come in and be a political pundit that would would lead the Israelites to throw off the shackles of the Roman oppression and and surge to sovereignty and independence and the glory days again. And that's not why Jesus came. He didn't come for that. There will be a time when he comes for that, but not this time. 
Jesus came for a different reason. If you were to flash back, somehow to pause the, this story and flash all the way back to the beginning, back when Jesus launched his ministry, he told them then why he came. He walked into the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, and he sat down to teach. He opened up the scrolls and he read these words. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Did you get that? That's why he came, for the poor, for the captive, for the oppressed, for the, for the blind, the spiritually blind. Jesus didn't come for people who had their act together. Jesus didn't come for people who say, well, if, if I get my act straight, then I can finally come to Jesus. Jesus didn't come for that kind of person. He came for the oppressed. He came for the wounded. He came for the broken. He came for the messed up and the jacked up. He came for the people that were they're tormented and angry and dirty and kicked to the curb and, and failing. That's who Jesus came for. And in fact, his whole ministry was characterized by his, by his heart moving toward those who had been outcast and pushed to the side. In fact, on one occasion, the religious leaders were uh, looking at Jesus and, uh, and they were commenting about how he uh, likes to eat with tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors in those days were at best, uh, they were um, people who sold out their own country to the Romans. At worst, they were criminal. And they say, why is he eat with these tax collectors and these sinners, these people? I would never eat with somebody like that. And Jesus, hearing that, turned around and shot back to them these words. He said, those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn that what this means. I love that. Hey, hey, Pharisee, you, you guy that knows everything about the law, go and look this one up. What does it mean when God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? He said, I've come not to call the righteous but sinners. On another occasion, uh, they were again kind of trash talking Jesus. Just look at him. They said, look at him. Look at him. He's a friend of sinners. They thought that was the biggest cut down they could give Jesus. And in fact, he used that as, as a badge of pride. He said, yeah, you finally got some right. I'm a friend of sinners. By the way, that's really good news, amen? Because I, I kind of look around there, I look in the mirror and I, I see sinners. That's what we are. And he still is a friend of sinners. He moves toward those that are broken. He moves toward those that are hurting. He moves toward those that are messed up. He moves toward those that have hurt others and been hurt themselves. He moves to us in our greatest need and in our greatest failure. And so here is Jesus now. We're back at the Feast of the Tabernacles. And the next day he gets up, he goes into the temple court, probably to the court of women. Most scholars think right there next to the treasury. And he just sits down and people gather around him and he's teaching them. And in the midst of his teaching, all of a sudden the Pharisees, these religious leaders come busting into the crowd and they have in tow a woman. And she's probably, we're not really told, but I kind of imagine in my mind, maybe she's got a, a sheet draped over her or maybe a, a robe or her hair is disheveled and in her face. And they're literally dragging her and put her right in front of the middle of them. I mean, can you imagine we're here sitting there teaching and somebody comes and drags somebody right off the street and puts them right there in front for everyone to see. And they say, hey, hey, Jesus, here's the deal. This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, the law says that this woman must be stoned and executed. What do you say? 
And by the way, verse 6 kind of tells us a little bit of their motive. Look at verse 6 again. It says this, they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. In other words, they weren't, they weren't that concerned about her breaking this law, all right? They weren't concerned about it. And they weren't really taking the moral high ground either. They were just setting a trap for Jesus. They knew that Jesus' greatest vulnerability was his compassion for people. And they, so they thought, man, if somehow we can put him in a wedge between the law and compassion, then we got him because there's no way that he can get out of that. But that's his greatest weakness. And so they were kind of sort of right in, in their interpretation of the law. If you look at Leviticus 20 verse 10, it did say that adultery was at that time a capital offense. Really, the three greatest offenses were idolatry, murder, and adultery. And adultery was because they, they reasoned this way, that if adultery was, uh, was uh, accepted, then what would happen is the, the family would dissolve, and so goes the family, so goes the country. Which, by the way, we're experiencing that even today, aren't we? And, and so that's why it was so severely treated. And so they said, now, you got you to gotta stone her, Jesus. That's what the law says. By the way, if you continue to read Leviticus 20, verse 10, it says not just the woman, but the man also. In fact, the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition uh, of the Jewish law, uh, gave very clear instructions on how the man was to be executed. But the man's not here, right? They didn't bring a guy in there with him. They just brought the woman in there with him. So this was really a setup from the beginning. Uh, my, uh, this is my interpretation of it. My thing is, I wouldn't put it past these guys who have actually had a guy go and commit adultery with her and say, listen, we'll cover you, but we want to use this woman as an example before Jesus. So he's absent. Now, is she guilty? Yeah. Is, does the law say what it says? Yes. And that's why it was such a dilemma. I don't know how long it took them to cook this one up, but it was a good one. It was a real good one. Because here's the big quandary, all right? If Jesus says in this moment, if he says, uh, give her justice and, and, and stone her according to the law, then they would say, well, wait a minute, Jesus, what about, what about all this grace business? What about all this friend of sinners that you talk about? And are you picking and choosing now who your favorites are? And, and, and hopefully to discredit him in front of all the people that loved him because of his compassion. But if he gave her grace then there would be no justice. And they'd say, aha, we know that God gave the Mo uh, Moses the law, and this comes from God, and you're opposing the law, so you're opposing God. And even then, they would, he would be charged with blasphemy, and they could kill him. So they had him really in a corner, right? Either way, what would he do? And really, folks, this is the great dilemma of the Bible. This is what uh, theologians call the great dilemma how can God be both just and gracious at the same time? How can he fully exercise his justice by punishing sin on sinners, who we are, and at the same time give grace and mercy to sinners that we don't deserve? How can he do that at the same time? The great dilemma, and it all comes down to this one moment. And so they said, Jesus, what do you say? Here, what do you say, Jesus? Tell us what to do. Where do you stand? And so Jesus just stands there for a moment, and then he just gets down on his knees, and he starts to ride in the ground. And they're just barking at him. Come on, Jesus, come on. We got to know. Come on, Jesus, give us your answer. Come on now. Come on, tell us. And he's just riding in the dust in the ground. Wouldn't you like to know what he wrote? 
I would too, but nobody knows, all right? <laughs> I just tell you. Nobody knows. If somebody says, I know what he wrote, no, you don't. Uh, you don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote. But there are some people that have an idea. Some people think that maybe what Jesus did was he wrote Jeremiah 17, 13. Jeremiah 17, 13 says this, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And earlier, Jesus had gone out in the great festival during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, and he cried out in a loud voice, come, anyone who is thirsty, come to me, and, and, and within you the spring of living water will come. And so they said, aha, maybe he wrote these words because he was literally writing their names in the ground, in the dust in the ground. Maybe so. Some think that maybe he was writing what he had already said to them in Matthew chapter 5 when he talked about adultery, and he said this, hey, listen, if you even think a thought in your mind toward another woman that's not your wife, you've committed adultery in your hearts. And so maybe he was writing that on the ground, saying, hey, listen, you have committed the same offense. Others think that maybe he just was writing all their sins, all their secret sins that no one knew but the Spirit of God had revealed it to Christ in that moment, and he was writing their sins on the ground. We don't know what he wrote, but what he wrote brought conviction. And so as he's writing these words on the ground, they're saying, come on, Jesus, come on, Jesus, tell us, tell us, Jesus, come on, you got to make a decision, come on now, give us your judgment. And he's writing on the ground, then he stood up, and he looked them in the eye, and he said, anyone here who is innocent, I'll let you throw the first stone. The first stone was always the stone of witness, the one that stood in judgment over that person, the one who had witnessed the offense. He said, I'll let you be the first one. And then he knelt down again and began to write in the ground again. And whatever he wrote in the ground, all of a sudden their hearts were convicted. It's almost as if they realize in that moment, who were they to cast judgment on this one when they had committed their own sin? It's almost as if Jesus was saying, hey, you want to deal with the law? All right, let's deal with the law. Let's start with you first. Let's start with you first. And let's just write out all the things that you're guilty of. Then we'll deal with her. And it says one by one, they dropped their stones and they walked away. One by one, the rocks that they were going to throw at her hit the ground. It says from the oldest to the youngest. Maybe that way because the oldest had sinned more. And maybe they, they were more sensitive to their own sin. Maybe they had greater reputation to protect, whatever it was. They dropped it and they walked away. And the, and the way that it kind of reads here almost sounds as if everyone walked away. Look at verse 9. It says, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Maybe not only did they feel convicted, but everybody felt convicted. And everyone left. And there was this woman standing while Jesus is just riding on the ground. And when everyone left, it says Jesus stood up. I don't know, maybe he cradled her face to look him in the eye, though she was so ashamed, so humiliated. And he said, woman, 
He's so tender with her. He said, woman. He said, where are they? Where are your accusers? Are they here? She said, no, Lord. He said, neither do I accuse you. Neither do I condemn you. Go. Don't sin anymore. And in that moment when she stood before the very one who had the right to judge, the one who was sinless, the one who had the right to throw the stone, she found grace. In her greatest failure, in her greatest embarrassment, in her greatest shame, when she surely didn't even feel worthy to be in his presence, she experienced Jesus' grace. And she walked away free that day and forgiven that day. This is a powerful story. The more I read it, the more I find myself humbled by it. This week, as I read over and over and over and prayed over and over and over, I have to tell you, there were several times I just got on my knees just say, God, I just, man, I don't deserve grace like that. None of us do. And there's a reason why this is in our Bible. And I think there's some things that God wants to teach us about grace in our failures today. I want to give a couple of them to you. First thing is this, that God's grace is bigger than your failures. God's grace is bigger than your failures. When he said, uh, neither do I condemn you, he was saying, listen, I'm not going to give you what you deserve, which is justice. I'm going to give you grace, and it's greater than your failure. I love what Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By the way, that's really good news. That's really good news. Because all of us have sinned against God. All of us deserve judgment. All of us, there's not one person here that is without sin. And, and because of Christ, we have no condemnation hanging over our heads. We, because of Christ, we can be forgiven, we can be restored, we can be clean, we can stand before God because of what he has done, not what we have done. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. That's why the good news is good news. Because we can be forgiven. Grace is bigger than your sin. Grace, his grace is greater than your offense. His grace is, is wider than your iniquity. And whatever you've done, no matter what it is or what has happened to you, God's grace covers it all. In fact, I love what uh, Romans 5.20 says. It says, all the passing laws against what a sin, all it did was produce more lawbreakers, but sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. I love that. Grace wins hands down. Romans 5.20, Paul said, where the sin abounded, grace superabounded. Where sin grew, grace grew even bigger. When sin was there, grace covered it all. And listen, there's not one person here, no matter where you've been or what has happened to you, that you're beyond the reach of God's grace right now. And even today, his grace would flood in your life and change you if you would let him. That God had brought you here maybe today to release some of the shame and release this guilt that you keep playing over and over and over and over in your mind and this sense that you're not worthy. God's grace covers it. It covers it all. Second thing that we learn about this grace is not only does God's is grace 
bigger than our sin and greater than our sin, but that God's grace is not a license to sin, but a chance to change. It's not a license to sin. You know, now some people say, well, hey, you know, man, if God's grace covers everything, the man, the more I sin, the more grace comes. So let's just go after it, man. Let's just sin all we want because God's obligated to give us more and more grace. And so the apostle Paul no more, no longer, uh, no more than when he says, hey, God's grace is bigger than your sin, then, then in the next few verses, he says, but hold on a minute, hold on, time out. That doesn't mean you just go crazy. Listen to what he says in, in Romans 6, uh, verse 1. He says, what then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? In other words, man, if you, if you think, man, the more I sin, the more God gives grace, so I'm just going to keep sinning, then you don't understand grace. Because grace begins at the point of our confession and our humility, and to recognize that we don't deserve anything but justice. And when we are honest with God and we say, God, I messed up, God, I've, I've, I've lost my way, God, I can't believe I did that, God, I can't believe I have this in me, and, and there's this disdain for it, that's when God's grace comes and covers our sin. And not only does he cover your sin, but he gives you the ability to change. That's the good thing about grace. It does, doesn't just cover our sin, but it empowers us to change. Titus tells us that the grace of God uh, uh, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and guided lives in this crooked generation. Listen, we need the power of God's grace to overcome some of these repeated sins over and over. Maybe you're stuck in a sexual sin. Maybe you, re you go back to pornography over and over and over and you hate it and you feel so dirty, but you keep going back. Maybe you're in a relationship right now you have no business being in and God even now is convicting you that that's wrong and yet you keep being drawn back. Or maybe you need to cut something off that, that you've, you've allowed to go way too far and you need, to, you need to come back. Listen, God's grace not only covers what you've done, but it empowers you to change. Because how can we keep going back when, when God has done so much to cover our sin? It's grace. That's why Jesus said, go and sin no more. Hey, he basically was saying, listen, I forgive you. Now go live like you're forgiven. Let my, let my spirit empower you to really change. And maybe you've been stuck in this pattern of sin and shame and try harder, sin, shame, try harder, sin, sin shame, try harder. You just go over it and over it and over it and over it. Maybe what you need is a fresh touch of God's grace in your life today. God's grace is bigger than your sin. God's grace is not a license of sin. It's a chance to change. Let me give you one more thing. God's grace is not free. It's not free. When Jesus looked at that woman and he said, listen, I don't condemn you and I don't condone what you did, so go and sin no more. As she turned away, I just picture this in my mind, that she's clutching that cloak that's over her shoulders, her hair is disheveled in her face. Maybe she starts to walk away. She looks back as if to say to Jesus, thank you. And then she turns and disappears into the crowd. As she turned, Jesus knew somebody had to pay. 
justice required, somebody had to pay. And he knew that in just a few months, he would be back in Jerusalem. But this time he would be back carrying a cross and he would march to Calvary and they would nail him to a, to a cross and they would lift him up between heaven and earth and on that, in that moment he would absorb her sin, her adultery, her rebellion, her, all of her stuff on him and not only her but us and that's the good news of the gospel that yes, God can be both just and gracious because his justice didn't fall on us, it fell on Christ. And when Christ died, all of our sin and all of our mess and all of our rebellion and all of our stuff and all of our anger and all of our lust and all of our greed and all of our selfishness was placed onto innocent Jesus and he died in our place. And so justice was satisfied on the cross and what he gave us in exchange was his grace. It's amazing. His grace to restore us and the changes. If it wasn't free, Christ was gonna pay for it. Just like he did for you and for me. There are three kinds of people that day. There were those that were hardened in their heart and even though they knew they had sinned, they did not come to Christ and so they were hardened against God and so they were the, they were the rock throwers, right? They did not receive grace and they weren't giving it to anybody else. And you know people like that? They just seem to be hardened in their heart and they're the first one to point out everybody else's mistake and throw their verbal rocks and stones at everybody else. And that may be you. Maybe you're just hard, your heart is hard. You're so quick to point out everyone else's failures and to rub their nose in what they've done. Somehow make them pay. But you're not experiencing grace yourself. You're missing it. There was a woman there that was broken and, and she humbled herself and, and she received God's grace and she walked away clean and restored and forgiven and new. And maybe that's you. Maybe the reason why you cry when, when you worship. Maybe the reason why you lift your hand. Maybe the reason why you're so quick to share what God has done for you because you know where you've been and you know what you deserve and God's grace is still so amazing. You've never gotten over it. But there's another person here, and that's the people that were watching. And they were watching God's grace at work, but they never experienced it themselves, and maybe that's you. You come and you sit in church, but you've never experienced God's grace for yourself. You've seen other people saved and changed. You see other people that are hard-hearted, but you have never really experienced the grace of Jesus. Then you can today. That's the reason why God brought you here, so that you can experience his grace when you fail.